from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Work and Life on Business Radio. Welcome to Work and Life, a conversation in which we explore everything related to work and the rest of your life, your family, your community, our broken society, so in need of healing from every single one of us. And of course, your private self, your mind, body, your spirit. I am your host, Stu Friedman. So glad you're here joining me this hour. I am the founder of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project, almost 30 years old now, and also the Wharton Leadership Program, uh, both of which I founded in 1991. I now run an organization called Total Leadership. You can find out more about it at totalleadership.org and also about my latest book with Alyssa Westring. It's called Parents Who Lead, where we take the science of leadership and apply it to the art of parenting. You can find out about that book and the workshops we're doing on it uh, at totalleadership.org. New episodes of our show premiere Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern here on Sirius XM channel 132, and then they are repeated throughout the week, and then you can find them at workandlifepodcast.com as edited free podcasts. You can follow us on SXM Business on Twitter, and I'm at Stu Friedman. I'm super excited about uh, this show today um, because it's, it's, it's about a topic that's important to so many people, really all of us, and uh, it's, it's um, from someone who has done some serious and important work research uh, on it. Technology has made Everything, homeschooling, working meetings, a lot easier, of course, during our pandemic times. But today's guest says it's also a source of, uh, well, making it too easy to get in touch with people and can put pressures on all of us to live up to uh, expectations, dreams that are still with us and are still unrealistic. Her new book follows nine real families in depth. Uh, in these remarkable ethnographies and explores how technology has intensified the expectations of three cultural myths. And we'll talk, we'll talk a bit about those and then look at how they play out in the current context of pandemic times and the new, the awakening really of, of uh, the issue of racial uh, injustice in our society, the ideal worker, the perfect parent, and the ultimate body, these cultural myths have a huge impact on our lives. And what, what she's done with her co-author is to reveal the important scaffolding, the social scaffolding that supports working parents in their efforts to accomplish or to pursue these myths. And she talks about important solutions, public policy, and other solutions that make it easier for families to, to thrive and survive we're going to get into those in the second half of the conversation. I am delighted to welcome Christine Beckman to the program. Christine is a professor at the University of Southern California, and her new book is called Dreams of the Overworked, Living, Working, and Parenting in the Digital Age. Christine, welcome to Work and Life. Thank you, Stu, for having me. It's really terrific to, to be here. It's great to have you here. Let me tell listeners just a little bit more about you, since you'll say none of these things, and they need to know. Christine Beckman is the Price Family Chair in Social Innovation, and she's Professor of Public Policy at the Price Center for Social Innovation at the Saul Price School of Public Policy at the University of Southern California. 
Before joining the Price School in, t- in 2018, she was a professor in the Department of Management and Organization at the Smith School of Business at the University of Maryland here on this coast. Uh, she also taught at the Paul Mirage School of Business at uh, Cal Irvine and is a widely known and highly visible scholar in the field of management and organization studies, evidenced by just tons of publications that get cited by gajillions of people uh, in our field. She's a native Californian, so probably glad to be back home in California, and uh, was at Stanford for her undergraduate and graduate degrees. Christine, uh, tell us, how did you get into Dreams for the Overworked? What, briefly, what led you to, to invest so much of your uh, research attention on this book? Well, when I was at, uh, in, at Irvine, my uh, a colleague, Melissa Masmanian, who's the, co- the co-author on this book, we both uh, engaged in a conversation where we realized we were talking to a lot of people at work about how they managed, and they talked a lot about their home life and how much they were needing to do at home and how important. So they talked a lot about home, but we were really in their workspaces, and we decided to really understand what people are experiencing. We needed to actually go home, right? We needed to see work from from the vantage point of home. And so we decided we were gonna embark on this project together to sort of fill in that, that gap in our understanding of, of people's work life. And you described the th- these impossible dreams uh, and how they affect our lives. Can you, can you briefly give us an introduction to what they are and then we'll get into how they're playing out these days and uh, what we then can do to support people in pursuing the lives they really want. Absolutely. So as you, you said in your introduction, right, we talk about three dreams, sort of a dream around work, which is being an ideal worker, just being available and responsive, um, successful in the workplace uh, that, you know, as we all know, takes a lot of time and effort. And with technology, you're increasingly needing to be responsive um, day or night. That, that, that's one of our dreams. Another is to be a, a perfect parent and to um, provide our children opportunities to spend time with them. Um, um, and that, again, takes a lot of time and energy and effort. Um, and, and then the third is what we call the ultimate body. And that's the desire to be healthy, um, to, to eat well, to exercise. And again, takes a lot of time and energy and you put all, 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 each one of these alone, I think would, is, is nearly impossible to achieve, but you put these all together. And in these families, we found they were really struggling to accomplish all three of these, all three of these goals. And, and they didn't want to give up on any of them. They, their dreams were to be great workers, to be great parents, um, to be healthy, uh, but they really didn't have time. Let me, let me dive into the um, perfect parent. How is it that you frame that uh, or define that uh, in, in your study? Yeah, so we, t- we talk about parenting and sort of the several elements of each of these, each of these dreams or each of these myths. Um, parenting is about um, spending, spending quality time with your children, mm-hmm. sort of um, enrichment activities. So Annette Leroux has talked about especially in middle-class and upper-class families, this desire to you know, have piano lessons and swimming lessons and, and sort of engaging them. And then also the other, the other elements being um, sort of monitoring, right? We need, to, we need to track their homework. We need to make sure they're not using technology too much. So, and, then, and then prioritizing that and making sure that we're making that an important priority in our life. So those are sort of the four, the four elements, right? Of, of quality time, providing enrichment opportunities, monitoring and tracking what they're doing, 
and, and making sure we're, we're prioritizing those efforts. Where does, um, you know, morality, ethics, values, you know, the socialization function of the family, how does, how does that play in, in your understanding of how people think about what it means to be a perfect parent these days? Well, I think it's, it's, a, it's a great question. And um, I think it comes in a, in a couple different ways. I mean, that the idea of quality time, whether that's family dinner or playing with your kids, sort of having those interactions and having those conversations is a place where those values and beliefs sort of get, get spread. I think it's one of the reasons we value that quality time is because it's through those interactions. Um, but I think we often don't think enough about them. And a lot of, a lot of the of parenting today is about making sure your kids get opportunities and it's this it's mode of accomplishment. And you know, yeah. at pretty early ages, we're worried about college. Um, and so that's about you know, resume building. And it's not as often about those conversations and those interactions as, as it might be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I asked because I, it's a central focus in, in what we've written about in Parents Who Lead, but more importantly for our conversation today, which is taking place in mid-June 2020, how the the purpose of, of family life or a purpose of family life is to help children understand their role in the larger world and with so much uncertainty and so much uh, focus on questions of you know justice and who we are as a people, uh, it would seem you know more pressing as an as an issue for for families and one that they are wrestling with and perhaps have new opportunities to to take advantage of in sharing their values uh, in in the current context. What do you think? Well, I I I would like that to be true. I guess I would I would point to so I was talking with. You know, um, with one of the one of the families we were with, a woman named Teresa who has three kids, who are ranging from three to a freshman in high school now, and she doesn't have time to have those conversations. She and her husband are both working full time. They've got a setup on their dining room table where they each have their laptop mm-hmm. so they can see the kids and sort of be. But they're juggling their different Zoom meetings. Um, it's not clear to me they really have the time to actually engage, use this moment to engage in those mm-hmm. conversations. Or that it's as pressing a priority as responding to the you know, Slack channels that they're on and, or whatever yeah. other uh, impositions you know, the, the, uh, the advance of their coworkers or their children are making uh, through the various forms of technology that they have, you know, that are, uh, coming at them all the time. It's it's harder to focus on, on on those questions, and yet it seems ever more important. Well, we we can come back to that, now, and I want yeah. to, because uh, when we get into you know solutions and public policy implications for what it is that you found, um, so there are these myths and. Do you see them playing out in a different way in over these last couple of months? Uh, or is it, you know, are they, are they intensified by, uh, by our current social and cultural and political context or somehow mitigated? Yeah, so, so we talk about these dreams as being impossible. Mm-hmm. And that was before we got to the pandemic. And I would say, mm-hmm. right, we thought they were impossible now. Now they're, they're, you know, it's surreal how impossible they are. If you're a working parent and yeah, you're homeschooling your kids and still trying to, 
to manage your meeting sort of work um, has more demands and, and parenting has um, more demands. So I think what we're really seeing is um, they're intensified. You know, going back to Teresa, I asked her how she was managing and her first response was, we're not, right? I mean, just simply it was impossible. Mm. You, you uh, argue in, in the book that you know, things are getting harder now because of the information technology explosion. And, and as context for listeners uh, who might want to explore further on this show, I've spoken twice with Cal Newport, author of Digital Minimalism and Deep Work, with Maggie Jackson, who wrote Distracted, uh, Kathy Steiner Adair, who wrote uh, The Big Disconnect, Protecting Childhood and Family Relationships in the Digital Age, Julie Hames uh, Lithcott, many others. You can find out more about those shows and others at workandlifepodcast.com. Christine, what did, what did you and Melissa find about why it's more difficult today than it has been in the past? Why technology hasn't been the great liberator uh, on all yeah. fronts as we, as we had hoped? Yes. I mean, I think it does help in the moment, but in the big picture, it, it, sort of spirals the expectations of what we can accomplish. So we think of technology, we think of these strings between people and our devices are helping, they're, they're tying us to people through these strings, right? And, and it used to be that those strings were, were always there, but they were a little looser. And what technology has done is really tightened them. So, so I, can, I can text my partner and say, I can't go pick up my kid at swimming because I, this meeting just came up. And because the, that that, that string is so tight, I can get an immediate response and immediate help, right? And so what that did is it made invisible all the behind the scenes work it, did, it took to sort of make, manage our lives, made us be more available and more accessible at work, which, which was great, but it, it, it increased the demands on other people in our lives. And, and so those strings are, are pretty, pretty tight as a result. And so we talk about trying to loosen those strings to, to make it more manageable. Okay. We're going to come back to that. I just want to remind listeners, this is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Stu Friedman. So glad you're here. My guest is USC professor Christine Beckman, author of the just-released Dreams of the Overworked, Living, Working, and Parenting in the Digital Age. So you, you mentioned the term invisibility. Uh, say more about what you mean by uh, things being invisible that are now perhaps more visible or not as visible as they ought to be? Absolutely. So, so, you know, so my swimming example was from a man in our city named Jay. And so he could just quietly send a text to his wife when something happened at work, he could you know, be around the conference table um, and, and, and sort of send that quick text and no one in the table would sort of know what it took to sort of be able to rearrange his schedule in order to be able to be available to work. Right. Unless, uh, unless, of course, they were able to like look under the table and see what he was writing or somehow be able to read his finger movements and know that what he was typing was a message to his wife about picking up the bagels or something. Yeah. Maybe Absolutely. not. Uh, yeah. They would rib each other about it quite a bit, for sure, about that. About, uh, and they, 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 the company, this is one company where all these um, families um, worked, and at least they, they would talk about, should we have rules about whether you can have your device uh, in, in the conference room, but yeah. inevitably, you know, the work and the personal are there simultaneously. So if you, if you say no phones, you, you can't respond to the urgent work email, uh, or, or the family text. Right. Uh, so, so he could, he could make a, let's, let's put it in quotes, invisible message 
And yeah. what, what's, what's the meaning of that? Why does that matter? It matters because it, it hides all that, that we need to do um, to manage our, our, our lives at, at, at home, right? And, and, it, and, it, and it, it hides the inequities in sort of who's able sort of mm. to do what. So Nancy is another, another uh, family nurse. She's a single mom. Right. She didn't have someone that she could should, could text as easily. Uh, so that made it much more challenging when she needed to go on a work trip or needed to stay late. And honestly, she just couldn't stay late. The babysitter was only so forgiving. Um, and she just mm-hmm. she couldn't uh, just you know, leave the office an hour later. Um, and so that that invisibility allows us to miss the different lives and the di- complexity of those lives and enables some people to succeed more easily than others. Could you say more about that? Uh, like where those uh, inequalities f- sort of create um, greater challenges for people who don't have the kind of social supports that uh, others do? And, Absolutely. And-, and I think it's important also just to preview it, that the technology is changing this right now and, and in really interesting ways yes, please. Uh, during the pandemic. But um, Right, so, so the single parents uh, versus someone that has a, a, a spouse or a partner at home versus people, dual working parents, right? So, that, so what we talk about as scaffolding is this, these sort of the invisible support sort of that are behind the scenes that are helping us show up as a worker or, or as a parent, right? I mean, if, if I want to, to spend this quality time with my, my kids, um, I need to have you know, have time that's not spent doing um, housework or, I mean, so, so it's not just about the work or really all of these myths require dedicated time. And in order to do those, we need support and we need help from other people. And sometimes those are in the house, right? That, that uh, partners, um, extended family members, neighbors, uh, their paid help, it's childcare, it's babysitters, um, nannies. And so those are the invisible, so that's, that, that's the scaffolding that people rely on. And to the extent that people have different financial resources, different family resources to rely on, you know, not, not everyone then can, can, can succeed. And, and organizations, frankly, really benefit from all that invisible labor that is allowing people to show up um, at work. And what's your take on how pandemic times have affected the awareness that that we now have about the work that might have previously been invisible. I'll just offer one observation on this uh, as one of my regular public service announcements for uh, educators, because all my kids are in education in one form or another. My daughter, my youngest, is a public school teacher in special education in Boston. And one of the things that I've been hearing a lot of is how parents who are now homeschooling their kids have come to realize how incredibly valuable and underpaid our school teachers are. So let's do something about that, folks, and vote for the people who are going to provide the kind of funding we need for our educators and childcare workers. Okay? All right. That's my public service announcement. There will be more. But please, Christine, what are you seeing about how the pandemic is affecting our new, our, you know, our upended world, the visibility of the invisible and what, what that's doing to our consciousness of the need for change? Yeah, and I think it, I mean, I, two things I'd say. One is um, I, was ta- I was talking with Brenda recently who has three, three young kids and she said, you know, um, the rules are gone, right? Uh, she's on Zoom 
a lot that, you know, we know we, we all have stories about kids coming into the background, the dog barking, like life is there and we can't hide it, right? So life Zoom has, has, has made it visible. Yes. Um, and that's good. All right. In the same way, we can now appreciate our teachers and all and our, our, our child care providers and all that we provide. We can also appreciate all that our coworkers are juggling um, in, in, in their lives, right? Because they're there on, on the Zoom screen. So I think that does give us a moment. We become more human, right, to each other exactly. in that our, our roles in, in our home environments are revealed in, in, in some, some ways very vivid detail. So how has that changed, do you think, or will change uh, our, our collective will to, well, do things differently and provide stronger uh, scaffolding for you know, across, across the socioeconomic strata. Yeah, I mean, I do hope we use this as a moment to, to not just make those things invisible again, but to appreciate that they're visible, to appreciate that good things do come of it, right? We, we collaborate and communicate better as, as coworkers if we understand each other as, our, as authentic selves, right? So I think there are some, there are some work benefits and we don't, we don't wanna lose that. I think what we need to do is provide more support of, of scaffolding, right? So, so Teresa could, could appreciate that and agreed with that, but she's, as she said, you know, I'm still trying to make a presentation and my three and a half year old is banging on the pots and pans in the background mm-hmm. and they need to be able to hear her, right? So, so, so there, there's, there's visibility and then there's uh, making it impossible actually to actually do your work. And so whether that's um, organizations actually stepping up and paying for more of that, that work at home, especially if we keep with remote work, um, organizations are going to be saving a lot of money on um, office space and parking. And what if they put some of that money towards supporting the scaffolding that people need at home, if that's where they're going to be working? Like in what ways, for example? Um, so some organizations would pay for um, in-home childcare. Um, if, if we're still in this pandemic and we can't go back to daycare centers, um, people have advocated for a long time, you know, why organizations could pay for housekeepers. They could help, you know, if, if you didn't have to clean your house, um, you'd have more time to spend working and parenting and doing these other things. And maybe, maybe organizations, maybe the government, right? There are other, other countries where the, the government sort of supports more of our household and, and caregiving work. And I think that this might be a moment for us to, to consider some of those policies. Do you think that's going to happen? What's your What's your sense? Uh, skipping ahead to questions I had for later, but while we're on the subject, what do you? I, I I know it's you know it's hard to predict, but based on how you know you're seeing the world these days, what's what's your sense for the the prospects for uh, real change in public policy towards greater support for working families? Well, I, I'm hopeful. I mean, it's, it's, it's been a challenge for a long time, but what we do have more people seeing, right? As you pointed out around the teachers and childcare providers, we see how valuable that work is in a way that we didn't before. More people see it, um, uh, dads and moms, uh, the people on the other end of the Zoom calls um, that, for the people that don't have kids. So, so there is, I think, um, an increased conversation and awareness of it that I would hope people, as you said, I said earlier, right, to, to vote for people who are supporting the policies that are actually going to help people in these situations. And, and what about from the perspective of the private sector and uh, decision makers in, in organizations, for-profit organizations? Uh, 
what, what's what's your take on on how those men and women are seeing the world that is now and to come with respect to the provision of the kinds of resources that we've started to talk about in, uh, in terms of providing uh, you know, the, the scaffolding that, that working parents need to be able to thrive? Well, I mean, there's a couple things. I think um, it is hard to rely on the private sector to do this, right? As you said, because of the profit motive. And I think in, in the book, we offer solutions for organizations, but we are a little wary of, of, of relying on organizations to do this because they, they even, even the organization we were in that cared about family and valued it and talked about it, at the end of the day, it was hard to support that when you were considering your profits. And especially in an economy where things are, you know, this, our, our families were all working in hospitality, an industry that has been decimated um, by the pandemic. So it's a lot to ask companies to step up and pay for these things when they themselves uh, don't have any, any, any income, any profits. But at the same time, and I was reading a McKinsey report the other day that said, you know, organizations are going to save 30% uh, in moving towards remote and virtual work. And if you go fully virtual going forward, you're gonna save you know, all of those facilities expenses and at least some of them, right, should be. If, we, if we're saving money here, we could, all, we, we could support some of those efforts at home. And I think it just requires a mind, a mind shift in terms of what we think is important and what, what we need to have happen. Yeah, that's a good note for us to take uh, a short break on. Uh, and. It, and it both, you know, returns us to the question about our values. What do we care about uh, individually, uh, collectively as a society, and then as a, as a, you know, for-profit organization? What is it that we want to stand for? Where are we going to invest our resources? Toward what ends? Uh, and and how important really is you know the whole person of the the working parent. Uh, more so now, perhaps in the minds of more people, and that that is maybe a, a silver lining here. Uh, we're going to dig into this further when we come back. Uh, don't go away. I'll be continuing my conversation with Professor Christine Beckman about her wonderful new book. It's called Dreams of the Overworked, Living, Working, and Parenting in the Digital Age. I'm Stu Friedman. This is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You're listening to Work and Life on Business Radio. Welcome back to Work and Life. I'm your host, Stu Friedman. So glad you're here. If you want to find out what I'm up to these days, go to totalleadership.org. You can learn about our work uh, in bringing consulting and training to individuals and organizations around the world, and also about my new book, Parents, who lead in which we bring the science of leadership to the art of parenting incredibly relevant it turns out for the world we are now in uh, in which we are grappling with large-scale change with the pandemic and the awakening about racial injustice in our society so check it out totalleadership.org is the place to go but let's return now to my conversation with Christine Beckman, who is the Price Family Chair in Social Innovation and Professor of Public Policy at the Price Center for Social Innovation in the Saul Price School of Public Policy at the University of Southern California. We're talking about her important new book just out. It's called Dreams of the Overworked, Living, Working, and Parenting in the Digital Age. 
which also has deep resonance with the times that we find ourselves in. So, Christine, uh, let's talk more about scaffolding, this concept uh, that you write about in Dreams of the Overworked. And I'd like to uh, start the second half of our conversation with your uh, big ideas or thoughts about what individuals can be doing to build that that village that that they need to be you know raising their children and building their their lives as as economic actors as well as citizens what what are the key things that you found and that you inferred from what you found about what individuals can be doing these days yeah so i think certainly within within couples there's there's things that people can be doing in terms of talking about the work that needs to be done and figuring out how how to how to share it in a way that people are able to, to, to sort of work and parent in the, in the ways that they want. But I think, you know, if, as we talked about, if organizations uh, might, might not step up to the, to the extent we want, if, if it's gonna take a while to, to get to public policy solutions, I think uh, thinking about um, communities and, and sort of ways that we can support each other. I mean, we, there was a lot of, uh, reliance on extended family, a lot of reliance on on neighborhoods in, in in the best of times, right before the pandemic, and we're reading now about things like pods or bubbles, where where families might create smaller family units of friends, right, to for social engagement as we as we sort of move beyond our our nuclear families as shelter in place um, uh, ends. Um, but I think it's important to say that's not just for social reasons. We could use those those kinds of communities for scaffolding support in a very deliberate way. And, and we haven't seen people talking yet about that because that's really what we need. So what would that look like? Um, so that would so so Melissa, my my co-author, right? So she's got a five-year-old and she she's you know can create a small a family with her neighbor who has kids of a similar age. And they both work. They can then trade off who has the kids. Um, so that you can you know, be on an important meeting, get some work done. Um, you could think about that with, with food and, and, and shopping and cooking, right? I mean, th- think about, um, I mean, I think in the, in the African-American community, there's a long history of community mothering. Um, and that's partly because, you know, black, black women have always had to work and they were excluded from a lot of our dominant views of motherhood. There's some great um, sociologists who've done work on this and, and, and feminist scholars. But, but the, we, we, this is possible, right? We know that you don't, it's not just a nuclear family. Um, and we need to sort of think beyond that, that uh, archetype, which is really was never a reality in America. It's, it's, it's sort of this image, but it's, it's not true. And sort of, sort of opening up our understanding of, of family and who's part so, of our family. You know, the perfect parent myth, uh, if I'm inferring accurately, includes also that you're supposed to do it on your own. Uh, and, and, and be the, you know, the engaged, caring, supportive, opportunity-laden parent without having to ask for help. Is that your observation as well? And so what advice do you have based on what you observed in the families that you studied in your other research for how to overcome that? sense that you're supposed to do it on your own and that to ask for help is somehow admitting failure and that there's something wrong with you. Yeah, so first, absolutely, it is very much an individual myth, as is the ideal worker, right? The, um, these are all myths that are premised on individuals and individual accomplishment. And I think I think our, our hope in bringing up this concept of scaffolding and trying to reveal what it is that allows people to do all of these things 
um, makes that by making that visible, we can we can let go of that idea of individual accomplishment and sort of recognize that that it, that these are um, community collective joint efforts, and, that, and and no one is doing it on their own. Even the people we think are doing it on their own, right? My example of of Jay, who's texting under the table to his wife, he's an ideal worker because his wife sort of covered for him when, because he couldn't. And so we need to not be quiet about that. We need to be more vocal about that. Um, in the workplaces and in on the home front. And I think that's how you can start to change the conversation. Well, especially those of us who are privileged to have those kinds of supports and don't even think about it, uh, are not even conscious of our advantages uh, because of the supports that we have. Um, it seems that that is a, a really useful and in some ways easy lift for those who have born, you know, who have had, you know, the, the, the benefits of social supports, what you call scaffolding, that to become more aware of what those supports are, as in your example, uh, and to realize that there's cost to it, that it's not free. You know, you refer to it as invisible work. And by making it visible, it helps us all to be aware of, hey, I, I've gained all kinds of benefits by having access to, you know, childcare, uh, a good school system, the, you know, the, the roads that allow me to, you know, get from one place to another, uh, air that I can breathe, as well as um, perhaps, a, you know, a spouse who washes the dishes or whatever it is that you, you have, uh, man or woman. Um, so to be aware, but especially for those who have benefited. So, what can people do, um, especially those who, who are the beneficiaries of privilege, uh, of invisible work and scaffolding that's just there like the air? What can, they, what can they do, what can we do to help those people understand what they have and make it more available to others? Absolutely. So, I mean, I think we could think about this in the workplace. Um, but uh, but just as, but before I move to that, the, the individual going back to the to the to governments and organizations for a second, the yeah. benefit of having those solutions is that it will inc it'll make that work more visible and more valuable. So it'll increase the it would increase the wages and the job security for the people doing that work. Mm -hmm. And I think that is an important um, benefit, right? That that a lot of this work that's done in households right now with low wage and immigrant workers is precarious and and low wage. And to the extent that we could make this more visible in institutional ways would, would, would benefit a lot, of, a lot of often poorer women who are doing this work um, in homes. Um, but in the organization, I think, you know, so many of our assumptions about organizations, we, we just assume someone else is watching the kids, that you have the flexibility to sort of prioritize work, um, and, you know, whether that's a late night meeting or a weekend meeting or, a, you know, a last minute trip. Uh, switching. I mean, so I think as uh, in organizations, we need to do a much better job of, of checking those assumptions um, and and scheduling meetings, for example, very thoughtfully and deliberately around people's uh, people's schedules. So think now about you know people homeschooling. Um, we can't be available twenty four seven. I mean, even in the good old days, school got out at three, and I was supposed to work till at least five. And so so we've always relied on on those times. So, so we could think about um, scheduling meetings in times where we knew people had the ability to focus. Um, we could 
um, use our technology more carefully uh, so that we sort of de-escalated the expectation of, of being available. Right? I mean, Gmail has the ability to, to batch your email. I can send an email to you at, at 11 or 12 at night, sure. but you won't get it until the morning. Mm -hmm. like those are ways that we could, we could um, sort of start to de-escalate the expectations around people being available. Or, or be open to negotiating expectations about response time. Right. Yeah. Just because you receive an email from me at, you know, an odd hour or, or what might be an inconvenient hour for you doesn't mean that I expect you to respond in that minute. Uh, and that's often not a not a difficult conversation to have once you have it, once you are aware that it's something that is a useful thing for you to bring up. And what I've found is that, you know, either party. Uh, boss or subordinate, let's just say, as, as the prototypical example, you can, you know, you can bring that up. Look, boss, I'm going to be uh, more effective and better able to support your goals and our objectives together if, uh, if I have some buffer time, you know, between when I respond, when you write to me and uh, you know, when you connect with me by whatever means you're doing so and, and when, I, when I can respond. Can we try, for example, where... Uh, you know, you signal when it's urgent and when it's not, and that, that's going to give me a little more flexibility to enable me to be more effective. Can we try that for a couple of weeks and see how that works? So it's not just only the, the managers who, who can you know, try to create change in, in creating a, a, in, in producing a more a supportive environment, right? Yeah, absolutely. These just need to be collective decisions, right? We, the, the thing about technology is we think about this as our individual device that we can use how we want. Mm -hmm. But because we're using it to connect to and communicate with other people, we need to have collective conversations. We need to have agreed upon norms, absolutely. And even if you know you're, you're, you can't get your manager to agree, you know, that your coworkers, you can, you can agree on sort of what, what, when you're gonna check in and when you're not. And I think, um, we, but we do need our managers to not reward people that are responsive, right? To reward the quality of the work, the, the task and not the time. Um, uh, because otherwise the people that, that need that and, and appreciate that are the ones that aren't going to get promoted or are going to get more negative performance. Yes. So, yes. So it's a battle we've been fighting for decades. Uh, but my, my, my hope and expectation is that uh, this this tsunami of the pandemic has, has wiped away not just the physical boundaries between you know, work and family life, but also the expectation that you know, people don't have lives and that they are the ideal always-on worker. Let me remind listeners, hey, you're listening to Work and Life, and I'm really glad you are. We're on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I am your host, Stu Friedman. I'm speaking with USC professor Christine Beckman, who is the author of the just-released must-read Dreams of the Overworked, which you probably are, Living, Working, and Parenting in the Digital Age. Uh, Christine, let's talk about um, multi-generational households, shall we, since I am now in one. Uh, I, there are three generations uh, these last six days living in my house. I am um, the most senior member of that household. The most junior member is 10 weeks old, and she's my granddaughter, and there's a number of others in between. Um, what did you find, uh, you know, and so we're, you know, this is a, this is a very, very explicit scaffolding uh, initiative here that's designed to help uh, in my kids in some ways. So 
Um, what did you find about multi-generational living? What are you finding now as you're just, you know, scouring the landscape and talking to people around, around the world and in our country about, uh, you know, the, 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 the risks and, and, and responsibilities and, you know, in, in addition to the untold joys of, of multi-generational living and how to make those work? That's so great that you mentioned that because one of the things I've been noting is I've been looking around and I haven't seen the data on it yet, but, but uh, a lot of, of people moving back to be with their, you know, to be, to be in a multi-generational home to get the, the support they need because if daycares are closed and schools are closed and you still have jobs, you need help. <laughs> um, yep. uh, and so I think that is happening in much greater numbers. Um, um, and it's, in, you know, even, even in the, even before the pandemic, you know, at least half of our families relied on some amount of extended family to, to support them. Um, and it's just increasing. Um, so what did you find and what are you thinking about with respect to, um, you know, advice perhaps about how to make those work? I mean, I think the, you know, your first point is perhaps the most essential and that is you need help. Don't deny it. And, and, and I, you know, that's emerging as the motif for me of this conversation, that we need help. And, and that's really what the idea of scaffolding is all about, that nobody does this alone. Nobody. Ever. Absolutely. And, and as, we, as we move from, I mean, in the summer is going to be one thing, right? I think if, you're, if your work is remote, you can, you can move home uh, and, and you know, live with your family, get the extra support you need. I think what's going to happen in the fall is still up in the air. I mean, if you have kids that are school age, that's going to then be more challenging, right? Because then it's going to be hard to, to do that while you're still getting the help you need. And, it, and I think we are very well going to be in a situation where schools and, and, and childcare centers aren't opening um, as fast as, as organizations and companies. And that's going to be an enormous challenge that we're going to, going to have to deal with. Um, but yeah. in terms of the advice you asked about. I did. Uh, yeah. I think I mean I can think of of two families in the book that 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 relied on their extended family a lot, um, and you know finding the right roles right. So so um, so one family of Dave and Lisa uh, it was Lisa's mom who helped a lot in 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 doing all sorts of activities and and Dave you know she she had opinions of course about what should happen and what should not happen and. But she, the, grandma wasn't the parent. And so there was always a little bit of tension around, you know, if I'm helping out this much as a grandparent, how much is my voice valued? And I should and, have authority, a decision-making yeah. authority. Am I right, Professor Beckman? Yeah, right. So I, I think that Dave and Lisa did a great job of listening um, and hearing it and, and taking it into account and sort of saying, if you're going to be helping this much, you know, your opinion is at least something that should be heard. Mm -hmm. but the decision-making still stayed with the parents. Um, and, you know, I think in your situations, it's a little different because you're all in the same house, but, but clearly kids can handle different rules with different people, right? Um, so, so I think that's also possible. It doesn't have to be the same with everybody. What do you mean? The rules, right? So, so, so grandma's rule is you eat all the food on your plate. Mom and dad maybe say, that's all right, you know, fine. Um, uh, so that would happen with Dave and Lisa's family. And they were fine with grandma enforcing her rules when she oh. was in charge. And they had their own rules when they were in charge. Okay. That's, I mean, I'm not a, so I'm not a psychologist. I don't know what the parenting. Okay. That's, say. that's an important caveat. And <laughs> you said that, right. You, your work is more from a sociological point of view and an organizational yeah. sociology, correct? 
Absolutely. And, yeah. and all, all I'm saying is I would observe kids adapting to different rules. Um, yeah. and, and that being a way to resolve some of those tensions is that, you know, and you see this with couples, right? If, if, I, if my husband and I are, are um, responsible for the kids, I can't tell him what he should feed the kids for dinner or how he should clean the house, right? If he's going to do it and he's in charge, he does it his way as long as, you know, we, we have some minimal n- amount of standards. And I think the same is going to got to be true in a multi-generational family. Of, of, of- I think the, the main point that you're making, as I take it, is that responsibility needs to be explicated. You need to talk about it and, and come to some agreement about how you're going to operate, what norms you're going to try to follow, what your you know basic expectations are. And then to be open to adjusting them, because there's always going to be conflict. There's always going to be difference. Uh, you're, you know, it's never going to be perfectly aligned. Your interests and their interests, whoever it is, that's part of the your your village, your 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 social support system. Um, and in in the few minutes that we have left, let me ask, what what's your best advice for what people can be doing to build that network of support that that we all need? Uh, to be able to to thrive in 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 the world today, what's what's the essential idea from the individual level perspective for for what people can be doing uh, at you know once they accept and deeply accept you can't do this on your own you need help you need help everyone does where do they go next what's what's the next set of questions or actions to consider yeah. Uh, so I think it depends a little bit on the person. And so I'm a little hesitant sure. to say, you're already working and parenting and trying to take care of yourself. Now go try and build your scaffolding. But I, I don't want to give people one more thing sort of an, in their impossible list of things to do. So just Another gonna, task. Yeah. Right. So, so I think I'm very cognizant of, of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but looking at, at you know, people have, they, they, they have some uh, scaffolding sort of that they that they've built you know whether that's your neighbors whether that's your extended family whether that's a reliance on paid help um, whatever your circumstance is sort of recognizing those relationships and how valuable they are and mm. and showing I mean valuing and appreciating them I mean I think is is sort of one place to start I think this pandemic has made us sort of recognize from the teachers to the caregivers to the housekeepers to the parents to the neighbors how valuable those people are in our lives and i think mm-hmm. that's a that's a place to start is to to be really deliberate and and explicit about that appreciation and trying to build build on what we have um to to to, to recognize we need it to be even deeper um, in our lives yeah to to know that you need help and then to be ex- Explicitly grateful for and appreciative of the help that you're getting, and perhaps to to even think about uh, ways in which you know you can be reciprocating, or how you know the help that you're getting is in some ways making it easier for you to provide help to other people. Absolutely, and and you see, I mean, I, we saw that a lot with a lot of the the networks um, in neighborhoods of, you know, I'm going to pick up your kid, you'll pick up my kid. In the time when we had carpools, right? Uh, Endless carpools, which we're not, we're not seeing so much right now. Um, But those, those are sustained by, by networks of, of support. Um, Because if you have three kids, you can't get everywhere to the same, to their various uh, activities on on time without, without a whole lot of help. Um, So it's a lot of give and take. Uh, I did a lot of carpooling back in the day and, you know, that 
pattern of reciprocity was one of the important threads in the fabric of really important friendships that, you know, now 20 plus years later, uh, continue to grow and thrive. So it's important to, to be mindful of how you need help, but it's not just about you, right? <laughs> you, can't, you can't just be, you know, on the receiving end of help. Uh, and it's useful to think about how the help that you're getting enables you to help other people and to find small ways to to bring support to other people, especially those upon whom you rely most, right? Absolutely, and it's not transactional only, right? I mean, these are these are relationships that that bring that are friends and bring joy and and compare, right? So that that it's it, it's reciprocal and it's not just these aren't just transactional relationships. Even the even the paid caregivers, right? So Nancy would spend time talking with their babysitters. So they would they would connect on on all sorts of various things. These are these are relationships that are multifaceted and um, and important to to not just accomplishing our dreams, but also being human and and finding joy and finding friendship. We we just have another minute left, so uh, let me ask one more question. What what's What's the big idea that you want to make sure uh, our listeners come away with and that they can explore further in Dreams of the Overworked? Well, maybe we should, maybe we, and we've talked a lot about scaffolding, maybe just to end with technology and to say, to, to think that we, Zoom has been great in revealing our lives, but, but to replace all those in-person meetings with seven hours of Zoom calls is actually not going to loosen the strings of technology, really trying to be deliberate about what do we need to do in person? What kind of emotional conversations really need that face-to-face -face Zoom? And, and what can be done asynchronously? What can be done in the, in the times and spaces I can find? But to really think about how to, how to make sure that those strings don't stay, stay tight with the Zoom, not replacing the face-to-face -face with the constant in person, um, but to, to loosen those strings and, and give us more, more freedom and autonomy. So what would that look like though in, in, in a time when we can't be with other people physically? 20 seconds. Uh, so, I mean, I think Zoom is, is uh, we're hearing about a lot of Zoom exhaustion where those strings are really tight because I've got meetings from X to Y. Um, not every meeting needs to happen face-to-face. Uh, -face. Well, what happened to conference calls? Uh, what happened okay. to, I'm going to send you an email. So pick up the phone, people. Yeah. <laughs> Christine, we have to wrap up here. Thanks so much for joining me on the show today. Where can listeners find out more about the book and the other wonderful work you've done and are doing? Well, so, so the, the, the book is available on all outlets. Uh, the, the website is dreamsoftheoverwork.com. That gives you some more background on, on where, we're, where we're talking about it. Um, thank you very much for, for having, having me. Thank you, Christine, and thank you for listening. Don't forget to tune in next week, 5 p.m. Eastern on Thursdays. If you have a question about something you heard on the show, you can email me, friedman at wharton.upenn.edu. Follow on Twitter at SXMBusiness. I'm at Stu Friedman. And free podcast versions of the show are available at workandlifepodcast.com about a week or so from now. Thanks, Patty Hall, for making it happen. Our sound engineer is Dion Simpkins. I am Stu Friedman. You've been listening to Work and Life on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132.